From Brennan to the Bocachil, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Salduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 83, The Centralia Massacre. Continuing the running theme of social and labor the show has had going since the start of the year is a topic that I promised I would get to quite a while back in the show. Listeners of episode 31 might remember that I just very briefly touched on this topic during that episode but I finally decided to check it off the long to-do list since I've been tackling a lot of those recently that I've been meaning to do since I started this podcast the last week of 2020. If you haven't noticed over these episodes, the Wobblies played a big role in the labor movement across the Evergreen State, whether it was the free speech battle in Spokane, the massacre in the City of Smokestacks, or the Chehalis tragedy. The industrial workers of the world had their day, though that time is long gone now. They will actually be starring in at least one more episode when I finally finish the draft for the very first general strike in the nation in the 20th century, the Seattle General Strike of 1919. The industrial workers of the world, the IWW, had not received a good reception upon first encountering Centralia. In search of food and housing, 47 IWW members who were out of work and homeless arrived in town in 1914. Instead, locals there were deputized and ordered to march the Wobblies to the fairgrounds. The men left peacefully, but eight of them soon came back to town and said that they were hungry and would be coming back whether they were welcome or not. They kept their word and returned, helping themselves to food from nearby shops. This time, the deputized men led the Wobblies all the way to Chehalis, a nearby town where they were met and led away by Chehalis police. The residents of tiny, traditional Centralia did not grow any more fond of these radical Wobblies over time. The IWW opposed U.S. involvement in the First World War from a philosophical standpoint, believing that the country should instead focus on domestic labor issues. The majority of people considered this to be unpatriotic, if not downright treasonous and seditious. These unpatriotic radicals were not wanted whatsoever in Centralia, and really, during this point in time, they were experiencing similar feelings all across the Evergreen State. Despite the town's opposition, the IWW established a hall in Centralia in 1917. Halls were essential to the IWW's long-term stability and survival. Since they had a disproportionately large population of homeless members compared to other unions, the halls served as the main forum for communication. However, they were kicked out after the owner of the Centralia Hall realized he had been renting to the extreme IWW. The Wobblies didn't give up and located a new spot for a hall. They firmly believed that Centralia, which was located in the heart of a region where lumber was harvested, was an important location. Unions only brought in strife and chaos, according to most in town. A Red Cross march was in progress when the venue was raided a year later. A number of marchers dispersed from the procession, stormed the hall, led the Wobblies into the street, and then quickly demolished the building. Eerily similar to what happened before the Everett Massacre, the Wobblies were hauled out of town and made to run a gauntlet between groups of local business people who pummeled them with whatever blunt instruments they found nearby. Tom Lassiter, a blind man who operated a newsstand in Centralia that sold IWW publications as well as other works deemed to be subversive, was thrown into a car and driven into the next county later in 1918. 
He was advised not to come back. Not only did he come back, but he also kept selling the radical papers. He was detained soon after his return, though he was never charged with a particular offense. Civic leaders across the nation were leery of any and all wobblies since they were seen as unpatriotic and outspoken in their support for the Russian Bolsheviks. IWW members were frequently detained around the nation and found guilty on federal sedition charges. The Wobblies began seeking out a new hall in 1919 to replace the one that had been previously raided. Soon, there were so many rumors that the new hall would also be attacked, it was more of a matter of when rather than if it would take place. The Wobblies were worried, as was expected. Could you blame them? Any educated Wobbly could see the similarities with the massacre in the city of Smokestacks from just three years prior, especially with the beatings they suffered in 1918. Elmer Smith, a local attorney sympathetic to the Wobbly cause, proposed going public with their worries about being searched in an effort to win over the public. The Wobblies followed Smith's instructions and handed out leaflets, but this had little impact on shifting the opinions of Centralia's general public. It was quickly assumed that the raid would occur during the Armistice Day celebration on the 11th of November 1919 in an effort to replicate the success of the raid during the Red Cross March. All marchers were expected to be in military uniform, and carrying flags was heavily encouraged. The owner of the structure that now housed the IWW Hall even went to the police, begging for assistance, but was given no assurances because the rumors of an Armistice Day attack appeared so unrealistic to most everyone else outside of the Wobblies. Unexpectedly, the Centralia Legionnaires slowed during the procession to curate a space between their group and the Chehalis group in front of them. A portion of the Centralia group split off, sprinted to the IWW Hall, and forced the door open as the rest of the Centralia group came to a standstill in front of the IWW Hall. They were met with gunshots, much to their astonishment. There is little question that the Legionnaires started the battle because on later testimony, particularly that of Dr. Frank Bickford, who acknowledged planning the raid. Who opened fire first is far less certain, but it appears the Wobblies did. In any case, shots started to ring out quickly from every angle. In this initial barrage of gunfire, the Legionnaires Warren Grimm and Arthur McElfrish were slain. Only Wesley Everest and Ray Becker fired any shots out of the seven Wobblies that were present in the hallway. Who, or how many of the men stationed at other posts fired upon the raiding Legionnaires will probably never be known. Four Wobblies hid in the back of the room as the Legionnaires arrived, and three more came out the back. One who fled out the back and killed Ben Casagrande in the process was Everest, who was still carrying a gun. Up till he reached the Skakumchuk River, Everest ran as hard as he could. There, trapped and cornered like a caged animal, he viciously confronted his assailants. By this point, Dale Hubbard, one of the pursuers, had grabbed a gun that wasn't currently being used. Hubbard nevertheless aimed it at Everest and requested his resignation. Everest shot Hubbard dead and critically injured John Watt instead of giving up. It was only when Everest needed to reload his weapon that he was quickly overpowered and taken by the Legionnaires. He refused to identify himself and also vehemently refused to help his captors. Rumors quickly spread around town that this captured Wobbly was in fact their local leader, Britt Smith, but this rumor was a flat-out falsehood. With the exception of the membership list, which was provided to the local prosecutor, the contents of the hall were removed outside and destroyed while Everest was being detained. The majority of the men from the other sites as well as the other men from the hall were all more readily captured. However, one man, John Doe Davis, was never located. After hiding in a cold storage locker, Mike Cheyenne, Ray Becker, Burt Faulkner, and John McInerney promptly turned themselves in. Later that day, at the Lamb residence, John Lamb, Dewey Lamb, and O.C. Bland were apprehended without much resistance. 
After the still-anonymous Everest was marched back into town, some locals attempted to lynch him right then and there, but they were thwarted in their brutal attempt, and Everest was then transported to join the others in jail. Elmer Smith was also imprisoned due to his support for the IWW and his opposition to U.S. engagement in the First World War. Now that Centralia was in shock, pandemonium spread across the populace. Besides numerous injured, four men had been killed. The city's lights all went out that evening when someone flipped a switch at the power plant. At the same time, someone broke into the jail, snagged the cell keys, and took Wesley Everest away against his will. He was taken to a bridge over the Chehalis River, tortured, lynched, and then shot repeatedly. Everest killed two legionnaires without a shadow of a doubt, although he remained unidentified at the time of the lynching. The prevailing consensus is that the rumor that he was Brit Smith, the wobbly leader, led directly to his lynching. Smith was, however, securely imprisoned in the town's jail. Everest's body was brought back to the jail where the remaining inmates were given the assignment of curating a coffin and burying him because neither city undertaker would take the job. Herman Allen, the city prosecutor, promised to bring charges for the lynching if he were given the necessary proof, but no such evidence would ever be gathered, and nobody would ever be charged for committing one of the last lynchings in the Evergreen State. Anyone with even flimsy IWW links or leanings was imprisoned during the height of the frenzy. Two vigilante groups in search of Wobblies came together at an unoccupied cabin, each group unknowing of the other. John Haney was slain in the shootout between the two vigilante groups that that thought each other were Wobblies. Lauren Roberts, a 16-year-old wanted man, gave himself up on the 13th of November, 1919, at his mother's urging. On the 19th, Burt Bland would be apprehended as well. In Centralia, things improved a little when Bland was apprehended, but statewide and nationally, the panic had just begun. The public believed that the radical Wobblies had fired into a calm, patriotic march since it was not widely known that the hall had been searched before the shots were discharged. Wobblies were apprehended in logging sites all around the Evergreen State. The U.S. attorney suggested filing federal charges against every alleged IWW member across the country. Soon after this event, with the memory still fresh of the Everett Massacre, a law was passed in the Evergreen State making IWW membership illegal. Many believed that the Centralia tragedy, also known as the Armistice Day riot, was a deliberate element of a much broader plot by the Wobblies across the nation. Ralph Pierce came down from Seattle to represent the IWW members who were being tried since no lawyer in Lewis County was willing. Pierce was a friend of George Vanderveer, the IWW member who had so skillfully defended the Wobblies following the massacre in the city of Smokestacks. A large number of Pierce's clients had already provided statements by the time that he had arrived down in Centralia. Tom Morgan and Lauren Roberts had engaged in quite a lot of conversation, so much so, in fact, that the allegations against Morgan would ultimately be dropped. Since John Doe Davis, the suspected killer of McElfrish, had vanished, and Everest, the known killer of Casa Granda and Hubbard, had been lynched, the only murder case left to be tried was Warren Grimm's. Eugene Barnett was one of the guys stationed in a different building watching the IWW Hall, and it was he that the prosecutors chose to charge with the murder of Grimm. The remaining defendants would each face charges of conspiracy to commit murder. At this moment, Pierce handed this case over to the very experienced hands of George Vanderveer. Since it was immediately determined that a fair trial could not be obtained in Centralia, it was moved to Montesano. Even though Vanderveer didn't think a fair trial could take place there either, Judge John M. Wilson rejected his request to shift it to Olympia. Vanderveer's request that the men be tried separately rather than jointly as well as his appeal of these rulings were also both rejected. The judge also prohibited Vanderveer from talking about any of the Wobblies' earlier experiences in Centralia, which most definitely could have swayed the jury. 
The trial, which took place in 1920, was quite a significant occasion for Montesano. For the occasion, 34 legionnaires served as substitutes. Legionnaires who attended the trial were also paid and given lodging. These paid attendees appeared to be extremely official because the U.S. Congress even passed legislation enabling former service members to wear their uniforms. In response to what appeared to be attempts to intimidate or sway the jury, the American Federation of Labor, a far more conservative labor organization than the IWW, dispatched a six-person jury of their own to the trial. A battalion from the U.S. Army showed up during the middle of the trial at the request of the prosecutor, purportedly as a cautionary step, but most likely to intimidate the jurors even more. In a more encouraging development for the Wobbly supporters, the judge abruptly dropped the charges against one defendant, 21-year-old Burt Faulkner, midway through the trial. This decision may have been made because Faulkner's mother regularly attended the trial. Ten men were now being tried for murder. The trial came to a close after six weeks of testifying, and the jury then began its deliberations. In their initial decision, the jury convicted the others guilty of third-degree murder while clearing Elmer Smith and Mike Shahan and finding Lauren Roberts criminally insane. The judge overturned this decision and remanded the jury for additional consideration, stating that there is no such thing as third-degree murder. A final, agreeable decision was made two days after the initial debates began. In reality, Roberts was found guilty but insane, Smith and Shahan were cleared, and the other seven were found guilty of second-degree murder. Interestingly, a petition asking for leniency for the Wobblies who were convicted was signed by all 12 jurors. Judge Wilson disregarded this plea and gave the eight men penalties ranging from 25 to 40 years, which is much longer than the typical second-degree murder penalty of just a decade behind bars. The judgment and the punishments were generally disfavored. Both the IWW and Legionnaire supporters viewed it as being far too harsh and too weak, respectively. In order to prosecute the men for the murder of McElfrish, Prosecutor Allen rearrested each of them. Vanderveer pleaded for a new trial, but it was denied. Vanderveer further appealed the matter to the Washington State Supreme Court, where both his appeals and requests for a rehearing were likewise denied. There were no further choices left for Vanderveer. The further McElfrish murder charges were dropped, and the eight men were condemned to prison or, in Roberts's case, a ward for the criminally insane. In a related matter, the AFL jury decided to exonerate all ten men to absolutely nobody's surprise. The lawyer who was exonerated, Elmer Smith, remained persistent. He started speaking out in favor of the imprisoned men and founded the Centralia Publicity Committee to help his case. Four of the jurors signed statements in 1922 retracting their own guilty verdicts after Smith persuaded them to do so. These jurors said that they had only consented to convict the men in order to prevent a hung jury and out of concern for the consequences of voting for acquittal. Smith gathered numerous such affidavits from jurors in only a couple of months. Unfortunately for Smith, nobody really believed that the jurors had not been coerced into signing these papers. By 1924, further affidavits from witnesses to the massacre had also started to be given to Smith. Many said that they had been reluctant to be honest at the time. Based on these testimonials, Smith petitioned Governor Louis Hart to release the inmates. However, Hart argued that the trial had been fair and the eight continued to remain in prison. The principal impact of these affidavits was that Smith would be expelled from the Washington State Bar. A growing number of people, though by no means a majority, began to recognize that the men who had been convicted had been treated unfairly as time went on and as tempers and memories began to fade. Even one of the prosecutors, W.H. Abel, came to openly agree that the Wobblies had already received enough punishment. A legionnaire named Edward Call relocated to Centralia in 1928. He overheard people discussing the occurrence in whispers and was intrigued, so he looked it up. 
Call, who had come to believe that the men had been wrongfully convicted, frequently joined Elmer Smith in defending them. Roland Hartley was chosen to lead the Evergreen State as its 10th governor in 1925. Like his predecessor, Hartley opposed the inmates' release, but he was also becoming well aware that Washingtonians were no longer as adamantly opposed to their release as they had once been. After relocating to Minnesota, Roland Hartley spent the winters in the logging business and the summers working on Bonanza farms in the Dakota Territory. Later, he relocated to Minneapolis and got a job with the Clow Brothers Lumber Company as an accountant. His ties to the Clow Brothers were solidified when he wed Nina M. Clow, the daughter of David Clow, in 1888. Edward, David, and Mary were the three children born from the marriage. If you listen to episode 76, then you should be pretty familiar with the Clow name. At Clow Brothers, Hartley advanced to the positions of manager and vice president. When his father-in-law was chosen as Minnesota's governor in 1895, Hartley started working as his private secretary. He also supported the Minnesota National Guard staff during the Spanish-American War of 1898, earning the honorific rank of colonel in the process. David Clow would relocate to Everett in 1900 to start a new sawmill there. Hartley, in turn, managed development of the new Cass Lake, Minnesota town site for his older brother. In 1902, Hartley decided to relocate to Everett in order to work with his father-in-law. He eventually took on management or ownership positions at the Hartley and Lovejoy Logging Company, the Clark Nickerson Lumber Company, the Everett Logging Company, the Clow Hartley Mill, and the Everett City Tugboat Company. While he was expanding his business empire, Hartley had gotten involved with the GOP. He was chosen as Everett's mayor, and he held that office from 1910 until 1912, playing his role in worsening labor relations that helped to build up to the Everett Massacre. Two years later, in 1914, Roland Hartley was elected to the Washington State House of Representatives, where he served a single term from 1915 to 1917. David Clow, his father-in-law, arranged for Hartley to be sworn as governor of Washington State using the same gavel that was used for him to take office as governor of Minnesota. The establishment of a coordinated state highway agency and the adoption of new state timber regulations were two of Hartley's key achievements during his tenure as governor of the Evergreen State. Roland Hartley is also noted for being the first Republican governor of Washington to hold office for two terms and to seek a third. DeWitt Wyckoff, a theologian and attorney, conducted a cross-denominational study into the Centralia Wobblies trial that was undertaken by many churches in 1929. According to Wyckoff's report, which was published the following year, that while the Wobblies' plan to defend the hall with guns was foolish, it was more than likely that the hall had been raided before shots were fired. Eugene Barnett was not likely to have been one of the shooters, and the police had a duty to defend the hall and stop the raid, in which they failed to make any attempt to do so. The report believed that the soldiers present during the trial had been an overt attempt to influence the jury, which was quite clear to everyone in attendance, and many that were there were astounded that the presiding judge allowed it to continue. Continuing to argue that the trial had been fair and taking no action, Governor Hartley maintained his anti-union stance. In 1929, Lauren Roberts, who had been found guilty but insane, obtained a new hearing during the time that Wyckoff was preparing his scathing report. The prosecutor was W.H. Grimm, a brother of the late Warren Grimm. Grimm attempted to show that Roberts initially pretended to be insane because Roberts was not currently showing any signs of the proclaimed insanity. Was he really just faking it during the trial in an attempt to receive a more lenient sentence, or was the so-called treatment he was receiving at the asylum actually working? Although Roberts was very likely faking it, the judge decreed that the jury in this case had to accept the information that he had been previously declared insane. 
In the subsequent hearing, the jury determined that Roberts was now sane and released him from further punishment. James McInerney passed away in custody in 1930. The American Legion national leader was supposed to give a speech in Centralia on the same day that Elmer Smith arranged for him to be buried there. With 2,000 recorded attendees, McInerney's burial became widely publicized thanks to Elmer Smith and the day grew in importance for the community. Smith had undoubtedly come a very long way in winning over the populace for the incarcerated Wobbly's cause. Smith would be readmitted to the bar once again in 1930. Eugene Barnett was granted a six-month furlough from his sentence the next year, in 1931, to take care of his dying wife. Governor Hartley did not mandate Barnett's return to the state prison following the passing of his wife in the hopes that pardoning some of the Centralia inmates would aid in his 1932 re-election campaign. In December of 1931, Hartley also gave his approval for the release of O.C. Bland on parole. Elmer Smith, a lawyer and activist, passed away in 1932 and did not live to witness much of the results of his labors. John Lamb, Britt Smith, and Burt Bland would finally be released from prison in 1933, not long after Clarence Martin was elected as the 11th governor of the Evergreen State. Ray Becker was also given the chance to receive parole, but he turned it down flat. He wanted it widely acknowledged that his imprisonment was fundamentally unjust and did not want just a simple parole. Becker started making a concerted effort to promote himself in the cause. The AFL requested a congressional probe on Becker's imprisonment in 1936 at Becker's request. A committee to free Ray Becker was established by the International Woodworkers of America in Portland that same year. Becker's acquaintance, Julia Godman, the committee's secretary, went over Elmer Smith's case file from the 1920 trial in search of material that had been ruled inadmissible before but may be relevant now. Godman also received new affidavits from those who Smith had previously gotten affidavits from. None of these measures succeeded in getting Becker a new trial, as intended, by reducing Becker's sentence to time served in 1939, Governor Martin finally put an end to the situation that had started two decades prior. Officials believed Becker would reject their offer of release because this wasn't the satisfaction he was looking for, but surprisingly this time, he took them up on their offer. Essentially, Becker's release marks the conclusion of the Centralia tragedy. The episode has faded from people's memories since he was freed because there was little reason to keep it in the public eye. The only remaining public memory of the day is a statue dedicated to the dead legionnaires that was erected in Centralia in 1924. There isn't much left to serve as a warning to the public about what might occur when mass hysteria sets in and when defendants are tried equally for their beliefs and for their actions. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Doing so really helps the show to grow and to expand to a new audience, so any help that you can give in that regard will be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include The Centralia Tragedy, Elmer Smith and the Wobblies by Tom Copeland, The Lewis County Historical Society, The University of Washington Archives, The Washington Post, HistoryLink.org, The Chronicle, The Seattle Times, Crosscut.com, The Tacoma Public Library, and The Oregon State University Libraries. Thank you for listening to Episode 83, The Centralia Massacre. Episode 84 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hope. 
There's come on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's chimicum and stilicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still aguamish and the swirling skookum chuck. And moclips and copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.